Hey, if you're new, if you're just jumping in today, welcome. We're honored you're here, whether you're on our campus or whether you're joining us online. We've been in a series now, already week three, and we're calling this series Plan B because there's a guy in the Old Testament. We get 14 chapters about his life in the book of Genesis. His name is Joseph, and for 13 years of his life, he lived a plan B reality. His brothers sold him in to slavery. He was later falsely accused and imprisoned. And this is about as bad as it could get. And yet in the midst of this, God was up to something. God had a plan and God was orchestrating Joseph's plan B circumstances to get Joseph exactly where God wanted him to be. And that's good news for us because maybe you're here today and you're facing a plan B scenario, a situation you didn't choose, a circumstance you don't prefer, and you're wondering if God is still there. And what I wanna see, what I want you to see today is that God can actually use our plan B situations as preparation. In fact, that's the title of today's message, Plan B as Preparation. We're gonna be in Genesis chapter 40. If you have a Bible and you wanna turn there, go ahead. If not, we'll put all the verses up here for you. But in many ways, Genesis chapter 40 and Genesis chapter 41 are kind of where this story takes a turn. Up until Genesis chapter 40, we're not really sure why Joseph is having to go through all of this, and then all of a sudden, it starts to make sense. And then in Genesis chapter 41, we see what God is up to, which he's ultimately taking Joseph to a position where he is going to be in charge of all of Egypt, answering only to Pharaoh. So I wanna read the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 40, and then we're gonna spend some time summarizing the rest of it, seeing what God has to say to us today. So again, Genesis chapter 40, starting in verse one, sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. That's Pharaoh. So Pharaoh was angry with these two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard then assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night. Each dream had a meaning of its own. So when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. And that's what happens. The cupbearer and the baker tell Joseph their dreams. Joseph says, hey, cupbearer, Good news, in three days, here's what your dream means, you're going to be released. And looks at the baker, says, not so good news for you, in three days, you're actually going to be killed. Can you imagine being the baker? Right? So that's how that went down. Well, sure enough, three days pass, and that's exactly what happens. And so the cupbearer is very excited, and he's coming to Joseph, and he's saying, thank you. And uh, Joseph says, listen, here's all I ask. When you get back into serving Pharaoh and his household, will you remember me? Will you tell him my story? I've been falsely accused. I'm not supposed to be here. And the cupbearer says, got it. No worries. I will make sure I remember you and I tell Pharaoh about you. Here's the only problem. The cupbearer did not deliver on his promise. He completely forgot about Joseph. So imagine being Joseph and you're waiting around. You're hoping to get some good news. The cupbearer said he was gonna tell Pharaoh and nothing happens. And before long, two years have passed since this incident. So two years later, Pharaoh, similar set of circumstances, he has a dream. 
He brings in all of his experts. He asks them to interpret his dream. None of them can. And the cupbearer, he's kind of hanging out over in the corner, doing what cupbearers do, whatever that is. And he remembers, wait a second, Joseph, he interpreted my dream. Pharaoh's got a dream. No one can interpret it. Maybe Joseph can interpret Pharaoh's dream. And so he speaks up and he's like, Pharaoh, there's a Hebrew guy named Joseph in your prison who interpreted my dream. And you remember that baker we didn't like? He interpreted his dream too, all right? So maybe if we bring him in, he can interpret yours. And so Pharaoh brings him in and sure enough, Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. Joseph interprets the dream and then delivers this interpretation to Pharaoh and for everyone else to hear who has gathered. He says, your dream means that the next seven years in Egypt will be marked by abundance. It'll be marked by a fruitful harvest. And then the subsequent seven years following are going to be marked by famine. Unlike anything this nation has ever seen, So Joseph says, if I were you, Pharaoh, I would put somebody in charge of the next seven years who can manage and steward well the abundance and create storehouses all across the nation so that when the famine starts, we won't starve to death. And Pharaoh's blown away. He's like, not only can this guy interpret my dream, he's come up with an incredible plan. And I'm kind of summarizing and paraphrasing here, but Pharaoh basically is like, if I could only find somebody to execute this plan. And Joseph's like me. He volunteers for the job, right there on the spot. No training, doesn't really know how to do this, doesn't matter, he thinks this is my one shot in front of Pharaoh, I'm gonna speak up. So he does, and Pharaoh's like, why not? He literally takes off his signet ring, which is full of symbolism, gives it to Joseph, puts him not in just in charge of this project, but in charge of all of Egypt, answering only to Pharaoh. It's a remarkable set of circumstances to see Joseph's life transform from these 13 years of a plan B reality to now being in charge of this major project for the entire nation of Egypt. And what I want to look to today and see from this story is how God was actually preparing Joseph for this great opportunity through the 13 years that he spent in prison. But before we get into the specifics of that, I want to lay just a foundation of what does it look like when God is preparing us for something in our lives. And so if you're taking notes today, let me give you three principles of preparation that we can really use in any area of our life when we find ourselves being prepared. Here's the first one. God-ordained seasons of influence are usually preceded by God-ordained seasons of preparation. What's influence? God wants to use you in someone else's life. It's the only people with prominent titles can have influence. Not true. Only people with formal training can have influence. Not true. God was using Joseph for great influence and he was a prisoner in a foreign land. And the truth of the matter is that for all of us, God's desire is that he would use us. In fact, if God wasn't still planning on using you, he would have already called you home. So you're here. He wants to use you. But rest assured, many times before he takes you into a season of influence, He's going to take you through a season of preparation. And let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Back when I was growing up as a kid, we, uh, I grew up in metro Atlanta, suburban Atlanta, very crowded, very densely populated. There's a million people in the county I grew up in, but I was born in a small town in South Georgia. And then when I was really little, like four years old, we moved to metro Atlanta 
from this small town. But my grandparents still lived there, my parents had grown up there, and I was the first generation of my family to go to college, I was the first generation of my family to not grow up on a farm, praise the Lord, and so a lot of good things, right, from moving to Metro Atlanta. But what that meant is that every holiday and during the summer, when we would go visit, it was like culture shock. It was literally like stepping into another world, being there at my grandparents and, and the farm and all of these different types of things. And I started noticing as a kid when we take these road trips that the further south we got into Georgia, the more fields you would see because there were lots of farmers and you would see corn and cotton, peanuts and tobacco and all these crops that were being grown. And in my early teenage years, I began to notice that sometimes in the year when there should have been crops growing in a field, there weren't any. So late summer, early fall, and it was obvious that nothing had been planted on this field. And that didn't make a lot of sense to me because even as a young teenager, I was into maximizing things. I was like, why would you not, why would you not plant that field? And so I talked to my grandfather about this and many of y'all already know where I'm going with this story, but he explained to me that you can't replant the same soil year after year. That if you keep planting the same field year after year, you will strip the soil, you will rob the soil from its nutrients that the field actually needs time for the soil to be replenished. And so while on the surface, it may seem like nothing's happening because there's no crop being produced, there's no harvest that's being prepared, there's actually a lot that's happening right beneath the surface as the soil is being replenished. And sometimes, just like God needs to replenish the soil, he also needs to replenish your soul. And he will take you through those seasons. It'll seem like there's no fruit. It'll seem like there's no harvest. To everyone else, looking in from the outside, they won't see what God is up to. But just beneath the surface, he's building some things in you. He's building a depth of character. He's building a depth of trust. He might be building some patience. He might be taking you through a season where you're learning a skill, a competency, that you're going to need later for the next season. But rest assured that before you go into a season of influence, God will always bring you through a season of preparation. Let me give you the second principle when it comes to preparation. Our anticipated picture of preparation and God's ordained preparation are rarely the same thing. Yes, Lord, use me. I want to be used for you. I know I need a little bit of preparation. And then immediately when we say these things, a picture pops into our mind what we think will prepare us. And oftentimes, what God knows will prepare us is the exact opposite of what we would choose, thus a plan B. And think about Joseph, this makes no sense. Joseph is being placed in charge of a major project, the saving of many lives. Like if Joseph messes this up, stewarding all of the harvest for seven years so that nobody starves for the next seven years, that's not gonna look good on a resume. All right, he's gotta make sure he gets this right. And here's the problem, he has no formal training, none. There's nothing about Joseph's 13 years in prison that would lend us to the conclusion that he had been prepared to manage this great project. And see, if I were God, I wouldn't have done it that way. Can I say that, is that all right, all right? I just wouldn't have done it that way. I'd at least have given him a mentor, okay? A coach, send him to career day. I mean, something, right? It's a big project, and yet God knew what would prepare Joseph was 13 years in prison. Why? God's building character. See, God's more interested in your character than your competency. 
okay? You take somebody with a lot of competency and no character and you give them an opportunity, it's gonna go bad every single time. You give someone with great character and low competency an opportunity, they'll probably figure it out because they're humble. That's Joseph. He didn't have formal training, but he had character. He had humility and he was able to learn and figure it out and he was able to do exactly what God had called him to do. Let me give you the third principle of preparation. Our choices and plan B determine the type of experience, the type of preparation rather, than we experience. Now this is where this series is dangerous. Let's just talk about this for a second. The danger in this series is we can create a false belief that just because we face a circumstance we didn't choose or we don't prefer, God has to hold up his end of the deal and bring something good out of it. Hey God, I'm going through my 13 years imprisoned and I know you're taking me where I'm gonna be in charge and I'm gonna have a great influence and things are all gonna work out for my good, maybe, maybe. See, it's the choices we make while going through a plan B that ultimately determine whether or not it was a plan B or the start of a destructive season that never ended. So many times when we're studying the life of Joseph, it's easy just to read over the choices he was making, how he was cooperating with God. And see, God is so good in your life that he will actually continue to engage you and engage me in the process of refinement. The word that the New Testament uses is sanctification. It's a fancy word that just means where you look more like Jesus, okay? So the way God helps you look more like Jesus is he refines off the rough edges. He helps you die more to that old sin nature. And so many times, a plan B circumstance is what exposes those things. God allows them to rise to the surface to see what we will do with them. And if we handle these situations the right way, we continue to move forward in obedience. This particular situation or season can actually serve us well. But if we don't, if we don't cooperate with God, if we don't submit ourselves to the truth of God's word, if if we just decide we wanna do things our way, and we don't get from the plan B what God intended, God in his goodness, God in his kindness will take you through plan C, D, E, F, and G. We get to decide the timeline so many times in our life with what it is that God's actually trying to show us, and so our choices matter. So what I wanna spend the rest of our time doing is looking at these choices. How do we actually experience plan B as preparation? This is not a formula where if you do your part and I do my part, God has to do his part. That's not what we're talking about here, but we are looking at some principles that we can pull from this story that allow us to cooperate with God in our plan B so that it serves as preparation. Let me give you the first way. We can experience plan B as preparation. Keep coming back to the truth of God's presence and draw strength from him. It's a theme in this series. It's a theme in this story Over and over in the life of Joseph, here's what we read. And the Lord was with Joseph, and God was with Joseph. In the midst of challenging circumstances, God was there. And what we have to come back to over and over again is the truth of God's presence. We have to remind ourselves. We have to remind ourselves. See, we're sitting in church, and our preacher's telling you, God's presence, and everybody's nodding. Remember remember that on Tuesday when things aren't going well, okay? Thursday night when your spouse won't agree with you again, right? 
God is here, he's with me. You gotta keep reminding yourself when you're going through a set of circumstances you didn't choose. Now, how do you do that in plan B? Let me give you a verse. We're gonna kind of step outside of the story, pull in this verse, because it's been super helpful for me when I'm going through plan B situations. Psalm chapter 130, verse five. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word, I put my hope. We'll talk about waiting in a second. I love the way that the end of the verse, how it says it. That in his word, I put my hope. If you don't know what God's word says, how are you gonna put your hope in it? Get into God's word every day. It's a gift to us. But it says I wait for the Lord. It says my whole being waits. And then we're in a season of plan B. It feels like we are waiting. And when we think of the word waiting, we typically think of it in a little bit more of a passive sense of the word. Like I'm just waiting. I need something to happen but that's not actually what that original word in the original language Hebrew means. That word in Hebrew, wait and waiting on the Lord, is not passive in nature, it's actually active in nature. What it means isn't that we just sit back and, and hope everything works out. It means that we diligently and faithfully continue to obey and do what God's called us to do every single day. See, here's what's amazing about Joseph waiting on the Lord. While Joseph was waiting on the Lord every day for 13 years for God to move on his behalf, every single one of those days, somebody else told Joseph what he had to do. He was a prisoner. His waiting on the Lord meant he had to get up early every single day and go to work and do things he was being told to do. And when they knocked on his door and woke him up in the morning, he couldn't say, hey, listen, I know y'all don't worship the same God I do as Yahweh, but see, there's this verse that hasn't been written yet, but the Holy Spirit kind of gave me insight, and here's what happens. I'm supposed to wait on the Lord. So I'm just gonna sit here. I'm gonna spend a little bit more time in my devotional life. I'm gonna let go and let God, and he's just gonna take over, and y'all just go ahead and take care of the rest of the chores today. But me and the Lord gotta spend a little time together. He didn't do that. He had to get up and go to work. His waiting on the Lord required diligence and faithfulness. Hey, some of you are in a job right now you don't like. You sent your resume out so many times you stopped counting. Your boss is just one of those bosses, all right? And you're wondering, how am I supposed to keep waiting on the Lord to move on my behalf? It's real simple, but you're probably not gonna like it. Show up to work early and stay late. That's how you wait on the Lord, okay? All three of you are with me, I like that, all right? <laughs> I mean, I even told you you weren't gonna like it, all right? Just thought you might be nice and still help me out, all right? We see who had a quiet time this morning. So, hey, that's what that means. You gotta put in the work. Maybe you're a student, middle school, high school, college student. Where y'all at, all right? <laughs> you're like, if I have to go to one more class where I learn things I'm not gonna use in my real life, I'm gonna lose my mind, right? Can I tell you what that's called? School, that's what that's called, okay? That's what it is. You go every day. They teach you a bunch of stuff you're never gonna use. When I was growing up, let's just have a little chat here, right? When I was growing up, do you know what my teachers used to tell me? You're not gonna have a calculator with you for the rest of your life. Boy, they didn't know, right? Come on. <laughs> they called a smartphone in the name of Jesus, right? The calculator never leaves my side, all right? So if you're a student and you're like, why am I going through all this? I'm learning all this stuff. I'm never gonna use it. That's not the point. The point is the person you're becoming in the process, okay? The person, the habits you're developing, the character that you're building, the skills that are gonna serve you well beyond that. So in this season, diligence, faithfulness, 
Working hard means waiting on the Lord by showing up and being where you're supposed to be. And we all have to apply that at different times and different seasons of our life. So listen, if you're in a place where you're waiting on the Lord, just keep doing what God's called you to do. Be obedient, be faithful, be diligent, and trust that God will move on your behalf. Let me give you the second way that we experience plan B is preparation. Live with integrity that is noticed by those who are far from God, okay? Joseph is a great example of this. Again, he's a Hebrew living in a foreign land, and the way he lives his life, everybody who's in charge of him keeps taking notice and giving him more and more responsibilities. We read this verse kind of quickly early, but so let's revisit it. Verse 40, the captain of the guard assigned them, cupbearer and baker, to Joseph, and he attended them. And so Joseph is demonstrating integrity character. And when you're going through a plan B situation, aligning your life with God's word and living your life with integrity matters. And here's why. People who are far from God, God's not on their radar. They're not thinking about God. They're not thinking about church, not thinking about Jesus. They're not thinking about you. They have no problem with those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. They really don't. What they have a problem with is those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus and then live just like them, okay? See, sometimes lost people have more integrity than those of us who claim the name of the Lord. I mean, they're lost and they love it and they act like it. I can, I can respect that. I can respect that. But if you're gonna take on the name of Christ, there's some things that go with that. Not perfection, pursuit. Are you pursuing after the things of God? See, if you're pursuing after the things of God, let me tell you who notices, people who aren't. People who aren't. And Joseph was doing this. Let me tell you an example I came across of this recently. I was watching this Netflix a documentary called Swamp Kings. Now, I can't recommend it to you because there's a lot of foul language, but I'm totally recommending it to you right now, okay? So... Uh, <laughs> We're just gonna claim the name of Jesus and grace on this one. And what it is, is it's a story of the Florida Gators football team from 2006 to 2009, where they won two national championships. And as a Georgia Bulldog fan, that was not a good time in my life, right? I remember those years very, very well. And I watched this documentary, and it really shows kind of the behind the scenes culture of a Division I college football program, where if I can just be honest, I'm not trying to take a shot at anybody or any particular individual, God was not at the center of that football program, okay? And you kind of see it up close and personal. But the reason why I, I started watching it and kept watching it, and now I don't have an issue recommending it to you, even though there's a lot of foul language, is because of the example that I saw from Tim Tebow. So Tim Tebow, he's not a perfect guy, he's just like us, but, but you know what? To see a story of an 18-year-old kid who was homeschooled, raised by missionary parents, walking to the middle of this culture of a college football program and see how God used him was remarkable. And here's what's interesting. As you watch episode after episode, the players, like they, they talk about how we were all going to corrupt Tebow. That was our goal. Our goal was to corrupt Tebow, this homeschooled missionary kid. We were going to corrupt him. So every Friday night, we're like, Tebow, come on. And we'd invite him to a bar and we would take him. And we just knew we could corrupt him. So the problem was he kept telling everybody about Jesus. So we stopped inviting him. That's what they said, right? <laughs> and you just watch how he lived with integrity. He practiced what he preached. And you see how he earned the respect of his teammates because they saw this guy is legit. He, he actually backs up 
what he says. He became a leader on, his, on the team, not just for the skills he had on the football field, but for how he actually lived his life. And, and what's remarkable about it is as they record the episodes, they're now all in their mid-30s, and all of these guys and all of those coaches, they're still close to him. They still look to him. He still has a voice in their lives. And it's a really good example that you can actually be a Christ follower in the middle of a culture or a circumstance or a setting that's not very God-honoring, and you can actually bring honor to God. And one of the things I love the most about these episodes is that, I mean, again, lots of foul language. Have I mentioned that? Lots of foul language? <laughs> Sorry, all the parents are upset with me, right? But in the midst of all that, Tebow never once stands up in front of the team and goes, hey guys, I don't know what y'all have heard this, but I walk with the Lord and that foul language is really bothering me. Could you guys just cut that out? Never does it once. He never places the expectation on people who don't have the Holy Spirit in them to live like they're convicted of sin. He just keeps being a light. It's such a great example. And listen, you don't have to be in that prominent of a spotlight to do the same. In your neighborhood, at work, in your school. If you will live with integrity and back up what it is that we believe with the lifestyle that you live, people will take notice and it will, they will take notice even more when you're doing it in the midst of a plan B circumstance. So maybe the third way to experience plan B is preparation. Stay focused on the needs of others rather than being consumed with me. This is hard. This one's hard for me, if I can just be real for a second. If I'm going through a plan B circumstance, or if I'm reflecting on a plan B situation I walked through in the past, I want you to know how it affected me. I wanna tell you who did me wrong. And I hope I'm not alone in that. And if you don't eventually do that with somebody, things can get worse. So I'm not suggesting you stuff things. If somebody has mistreated you and landed you in a plan B, I hope you have a brother or sister in Christ that you can just get all that out with them, okay? You can just talk that out. You can emotionally throw up all over their wall and nothing bad happens, right? I hope you can do that. But eventually, I hope that conversation has some movement. Because if you just keep circling around to making yourself the victim, there's no movement. And it's not gonna help you at all. But so many times when we're in those situations, we get super inwardly focused, and Joseph doesn't do this. In fact, I think it's the craziest two verses in the story. And I use that word crazy in the most reverence of senses. But I want you to see these two verses. I read them earlier. I'm gonna come back to them. Every time I see these verses, they blow my mind. Genesis 46 through seven. When Joseph came to them, who's them? It's the cupbearer and the baker. The next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house. He looks at this cupbearer, he looks at this baker, and he says, why do you look so sad today? Oh, I don't know. They're in jail. <laughs> I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I would imagine that every day in jail is a sad day. Most days when you wake up in jail, you wake up feeling dejected. That's how I think this would go. And yet Joseph notices that two other guys in jail look dejected. Are you serious? You got a dude noticing the feelings of two other dudes? That's a miracle in and of itself, right? <laughs> and then ladies, listen, he verbalizes it well. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> It's unbelievable that Joseph notices how these guys are feeling and then asks them, why are you so sad today? And isn't it interesting that this question of care 
is what eventually got Joseph in front of Pharaoh. I promise you, when he asked them, why are you so sad today? He wasn't thinking, I bet they're sad because both of them had dreams last night that neither one of them know the meaning to. And I bet I'm about to interpret those dreams in a way where one of them will remember me one day, tell Pharaoh, I'll interpret his dream, and Pharaoh will put me in charge of all of Egypt. Let's go. That is not what was going through Joseph's mind. He just thought, here's two guys. They seem sad. I'm gonna ask them what's going on. And it would have been very easy for a Hebrew in a foreign land, two guys, cupbearer and baker, who were thrown into prison. So Joseph has been falsely accused. These guys got thrown into prison. Now, we don't know what they did, but it does beg the question, like, what do you have to do as a cupbearer and a baker to get thrown into prison, right? A Pharaoh's gluten-free. I don't know. I don't know what you have to do, okay? But whatever it is, they deserved to be there. It would have been very easy for Joseph to have resentment towards these guys. They lived in the king's palace. They had a much more lavish lifestyle. Joseph's been a prisoner for years. Most of us in that situation would have thought, I'm glad to see they're dejected. We wouldn't have had compassion or care because we would have been so wrapped up into the unfair nature of the situation that we're in. And that's not Joseph. And so many times when we're in a plan B, we're so inwardly focused that we lose sight of all of the needs around us. And God has placed you and God has placed this church strategically to meet many needs. And for many of you right now, going through a plan B reality that's incredibly painful, it hurts, there's really no clear end in sight. For the good of your soul, let me encourage you to start serving someone else. That the best thing you could probably do is jump into one of our service teams to go out into our community and serve. The best thing we could probably do for you is give you a classroom of two-year-olds sanctify you real fast, all right? <laughs> now, some of you, we're not gonna let you anywhere near the two-year-olds, all right? So that right now. It's called a background check, all right? We don't do that, all right? <laughs> but some of you are walking through a set of circumstances right now that if you came up here on a Wednesday night, gentlemen, and you sat down with a group of teenage young men, you could help them, okay? You could help them. See, don't miss the opportunity that God may be presenting right in front of you in the midst of a circumstance you would have never chosen with other people. And if you'll have a heart to continue to look out and ask God to help you see people the way he sees them, he will point you towards those opportunities. It's remarkable how Joseph saw that. Here's the fourth way we can experience plan B is preparation. Go with God's timeline, not mine. See, God's moving your life down his sovereign, ordained timeline. And the challenge with that is that we have to live our life one moment at a time. We, we have this linear path. We're, we're tomorrow and then next week and then next month and then next year and, and, and years pass and, and we're kind of just moving through life one moment at a time. And, and we can't see our life from God's perspective. He's God and we're not, but just for a second, maybe we should try. So let's just try for a second. Let's see if we can do this together. 
So your life is lived one moment at a time, and you're moving along, right? You're going down your own timeline. And what I'm asking you to consider is God's timeline. And when you consider God's timeline, here's the truth that we all have to reckon with, that every moment of your life, in fact, every moment before your life, that God knit you together in your mother's womb. God knew who you were before the foundations of the world. So like every moment of your life kind of becomes pretty big, but let's just start with your birth, all right? How about that? Every moment of your life, before your life began, before you even knew who you were, before your parents knew who you were, every single moment of your life, up through your life on earth to all of eternity with Jesus. I need you to see this for a second. Every single one of those moments are fully present in God's presence. He sees them all. He sees them all. And that matters because so many times we're at a moment in our life where we are calling on God to move on our behalf. And church, here's what I want you to see. He is moving. He's just moving down here. And you haven't caught up yet. You haven't gotten to the place yet where he was actually moving, which is why scripture tells us to walk by faith and not by sight. To not fix our eyes on what we can see, but to fix our eyes on what we can't see to move forward by faith. And when we see stories like Joseph's in God's word, it encourages us to do that. It encourages us to go with God's timeline. And one of the things I love about this story is that we get a timeline. And so Joseph is in prison for 13 years. His brothers sold him into slavery at the age of 17. We see that he appeared before Pharaoh at the age of 30. So the cupbearer must have interpreted his dreams about the age of 28. And so we can see that the first half of that time in prison, he was in Potiphar's household, imprisoned. In Potiphar's household, he gets thrown into prison. And now he meets the cupbearer and the baker. And at the age of 30, he now gets this incredible opportunity to manage the harvest for seven years, to prepare for the famine for the next seven years. And the story has a nice bow to it. It's like, yes, that, that feels right. That makes sense. It looks like God used 13 years to prepare Joseph for 14 years. But see, it's so much bigger than that. Because again, this story takes up 14 chapters. And as you read through the rest of the story, Joseph doesn't die until the age of 110, which means in Joseph's life, God used 13 years not to prepare him for 14 years, but to prepare him for 80 years. And for the rest of Joseph's life, from the age of 30 on, his life is remarkable. His brothers, we're gonna read about them next week, his brothers end up moving into Egypt. They go back and they tell Jacob the truth. Your son Joseph has been alive all this time. Joseph is reunited with his father Jacob in Egypt, Jacob gets to spend the end of his life reunited with his son, Joseph. All of their families settle into a particular part of Egypt called Goshen, which archeologists have now discovered where Joseph and his household lived. All of this factually happened. And when Jacob passes away at an old age, God's word says, and this blows my mind every time I read it, that Pharaoh authorized the Egyptian army to lead a procession back into the promised land for Jacob's funeral. So Jacob could be buried back in his homeland. If you've ever watched a state funeral on TV, it would pale in comparison to what God's word describes as the Egyptian army leading the way back into the promised land. 
for Jacob's funeral. Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. The Bible says he lived to see four generations of his family. Joseph had a remarkable life. And God used Joseph in remarkable ways. And God took those 13 years and prepared Joseph for the next 80. And if you'd ask Joseph at the end of his life, Joseph, tell me about how tough those 13 years were. Joseph would say, in light of the last 80, I don't even remember them. And I'm not a prophet this morning, but just for a second, why couldn't that happen to you? Why couldn't God do the same thing for you? The years don't have to line up the same way, but the story could line up the same way. Where God takes you through a season where it seems like there's no hope, seems like there's no way out, it doesn't feel like he's moving on your behalf, and just about the time you're ready to quit and throw in the towel, he leads you on the other side. He helps you experience breakthrough. He allows you to look back and say, oh, that's what you were up to. Some of you, you're single. You've been asking God to bring a spouse into your life. You don't even really wanna admit that, but it's the, it's the desire of your heart. And can I tell you, you're gonna meet that person. You're just not there yet. Keep walking by faith. Some of you, you've got a business. God birthed it in your heart years ago. It's a passion of yours. You care deeply about it. But the finances aren't adding up. I mean, part of having the business is it's gotta supply the income to, to provide for your family and you're just about ready to quit and say, maybe that dream needs to die. And here's what I'm challenging you to do. Keep moving forward by faith. That your breakthrough is just on the other side and you're gonna have a story one day to tell about how God came through. Maybe you've got a, a child that's an adult. Your relationship isn't where it, you want it to be and you wanna respect their independence and you've kind of just settled into this place that maybe this next season isn't gonna look like you wanted it to look and you're just about ready to disengage. And here's what I'm telling you to do, don't. Keep moving forward by faith. Why not you? Why not God? Why not now? Why not God come through for you as well? See, church, that's what our God does. And let me tell you why. Because he loves you. He actually loves you. Not only does he love you, he's for you. He's for you. If you ever doubt if God loves you, or if God's for you, just look to the cross. He sacrificed his only son for you. So you could be reconciled back to him. And if you've lost sight of that good, kind, gracious God, I'll challenge you to seek him out again because he's right there. And as we move into a time of response today, I just wanna give you some freedom. We like to respond corporately as a church family, and that's still gonna be part of what we do, but I wanna give you some freedom to respond individually as well. You've got some communion elements there, and rather than leading all of us through that together at the same time, we're gonna give you the freedom to just do that as you feel led during this time of response. 
We're gonna have some members of our prayer team spread out all around the room in the back, on the sides and in the back, and they've got candles so you'll be able to see them. And maybe you just need to go to one of them and, and seek out some prayer. Maybe you wanna kneel. Maybe you wanna gather some family. Maybe you wanna find a few friends. Whatever it is that needs to happen in these next few moments for you to reconnect with a God who loves you, I'm gonna challenge you to do that. And so God, as we come to you in prayer right now, we just say thank you. Thank you for loving us. God, we didn't bring anything to the table but our sin. And yet while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. Thank you. God, for some of us, we're in the middle of a circumstance, a situation. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of hope. It doesn't seem like things are going to change. And God, we just wanna quit. God, will you meet us there? God, will you speak to your children as a loving father can? God, help us to keep going. Help us to keep moving forward. Help us not to quit. God, thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.